0: welcome to another episode of the Creating Belonging podcast. Today, my guest, Dr. Britt Andriata, is used to having people introduce her uh, for her um, because she's that big. <laughs> but today, I'm going to make Britt introduce herself. So, Britt, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about yourself. <laughs>
1: I love that, Justin. My name is Britt Andriata. I am um, the CEO of Brain Aware Training, and I write books on the brain science of success. So I kind of synthesize research from the world of neuroscience and biology and all the other sciences, along with big big data on business issues coming from, you know, global giants like McKinsey and Gallup and all of them. And then I really turn it into practical takeaways for learning practitioners in particular, and then those of us who have jobs, <laughs> how to make the world of work a little bit uh, more more enjoyable and more productive for all of us. So that's kind of my professional side. Uh, personally, I'm a mom of a teenager. So that's going real well with driving and snarkiness and all that fun stuff. <laughs> um, I am married to my husband of 20 years And, but I identify as bisexual just for, for the listening audience. And I'm also a cat owner. So I'm oftentimes chasing lizards and gophers out of my house that have been brought in as gifts. Luckily my kitties like to bring them to me live. Um, My favorite one was a snake. So yeah, that's all good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Brett, seriously, you just blew my mind for a second. I've known you for eight years we've become like better friends over time and you have never disclosed to me your identity as bisexual
1: well <laughs> i mean it's out there in the world i've i've been public about it so maybe you just didn't read the right thing but... <laughs>
0: Apparently. You know, well, thank you for sharing that.
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting too. I mean, you know, I, as someone who's been married and in a committed relationship for 20 years, I'm not exactly like out on the dating scene or going to clubs and saying who am I attracted to. Right. Um, that, you know, that part of my life is kind of settled, but I still very much identify as bisexual and that's part of my identity, but you probably don't see me actively engaged right. with that exploration anymore.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, what other, um, you know, as it, people are getting used to with this podcast, we usually have our guests dig into some of their identities. What other identities would you like to pull out for our conversation today?
1: Yes. So for the listening audience, I am a white woman and I have an Irish background. So I'm as I'm as white as white can be. I, I kind of <laughs> glow a little bit blue in the sun. So <laughs> <laughs> I burn, don't tan. Um I can, I'm a first generation person. My parents didn't complete college, but I have a PhD. I grew up very low income, but I'm doing okay now. Um, I also am the child of a mom, a single mom with mental illness. And so have grown up in some abusive environments and had to do a lot of therapy to work through that. I consider myself an anti-racist who still—it's a lifelong journey to unlearn, unlearn privilege and bias and and the things that we were taught. But I've, I I consider myself a committed ally to all communities. Um, what else? I think those are the big ones.
0: Yeah, those are oh, good. That yeah. I get the unlearning thing uh, is uh, it it takes work for sure. For
1: sure. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, as a mom, I've had so much of my internalized patriarchy and sexism really slap me in the face because a thought will pop in my head of something to say to my daughter. And it it just shocks me sometimes. Like, oh, you know, boys won't like it if you're to this or boys won't like it if you're too that. And mm-hmm. I don't say it out loud, but it's just like, oh gosh, that tape is there, you know, and mm-hmm. the amount of things that I find myself thinking that i don't believe. So there's this whole internal tape of thoughts that have been installed that come to the surface and they're a little shocking sometimes. Then you're like, "Wait, where did that come from? That is not who i am or what i believe." But a lot of stuff comes up. I mean, i'm seeing a lot of the internalized sexism right now as a as a mom of a teenage girl.
0: Well, as someone who does a lot of research in neuroscience and, you know, studying kind of behavior things like that, i think we'll definitely let's come back around to what you're finding in the research around that like here's these things that I'm popping up that I want to say that I actually don't believe uh, is an interesting, interesting thing to look at, but I want to get into kind of the stuff that I love talking about, digging into some of the personal experiences of our guests. Um, And so I know you're familiar with the creating belonging model, and I would love to hear if you could pick one area of the model that you have an experience that you could relate to and share that with us.
1: Yeah. I mean, for the one that really stands out to me is overbearing because as a white person, I was very much raised with total blinders on around the impact of race and that that my race meant something and that race, that my experience of race was very different than other people's experience of race. So this all kind of came uh, to my attention in college And those blinders were ripped off very quickly and painfully, but I'm so grateful that they came off. And and I can, I I remember to this moment, the the really shocking experience that I had that started my exploration. And it was when I was on a summer trip with a group of friends and uh, there was like five or six of us, all of us were white, except for Carell, Carell Augustus. He's a famous photographer. He wasn't famous then. And we all went on a trip to Napa Valley. And we had been in a grocery store and realized one of the wineries we were going to, we were all, I think we were seniors or graduate school. um, One of the wineries was closing. And so we were all rushing to, and so we all, many of us had gotten out in the car and Carell was coming out of the store. And I was like, Carell, run, we're going to be late. And he just kept walking. And we were like, Carell, hurry, come on, run, Carell, run. And he just sauntered his way over and got in the car. And we were like, dude, we're going to be late. And he looked at us and he was like, I am a black man. I will never run from a store. Do you understand that that could do to me? I could get killed for that. And we were all just gobsmacked and shocked. And then he went on to explain, you know, how much he experiences racial profiling, um, that even the act of running from a store could be enough of a trigger for a person or a police officer or something to assume guilt first. And it really was it was really, God, it makes me sad just to hear, think about it. I mean, I could hear the pain in his voice. And, and that was when I realized that he lived in a very different world than I did. And so after that, many of us really dug into the work and did some really intentional learning around privilege and bias and race. And of course that leads you to all the other isms too. And so I think that's, what's hard about these conversations is that I know that people of color, people who are in marginalized communities live the pain of being the target all the time. But there's also pain in when you learn that the world that you thought you lived in doesn't exist. And and it's really hard to deal with that. Sometimes it's called white fragility. Sometimes it's called white guilt. But I also think it's just the shock and horror of realizing that you've been not only lied to about what the world really is, but you've been participating in it in ways that you didn't know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jeez. thank you for sharing <laughs> so that. There's
1: there's overbearing for you. You made me happy <laughs> in the first five minutes, Justin.
0: <laughs> I know. Look at me. Look at me. I'm, I'm the new Barbara Walters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I you know the overbearing part of the model. <clears throat> I always I make a little joke about how the stories that i share about myself in the book are in belonging and the stories i share especially in overbearing are always of other people but i know that i know so much of my life i've been in a place of overbearing you know i talk a lot about growing up in rural iowa and the extreme blinders that that puts on one and then, and I can't remember if I've talked about this before, but then kind of, you know, going along my journey and then, you know, embracing my gay identity and holding on to my gay identity as like, oh, well, I'm marginalized too. So I'm just like everyone else who's marginalized. And I held that until, you know, more recent than I would like to admit that I finally realized that you know, while I have that part of my marginalized identity, like I have a lot of other privileged identities. And so, you know, the, the work of the book, I think, got me into thinking about, wow, all the times that I've been in overbearing and all the things that I've done um, that have hurt other people without realizing it. Um, so it, that that overbearing one is interesting. And it's I think it's powerful when we can find when we've been there because it's really hard. Like I talk a lot about like, we don't see ourselves as bad people. And so when we look at things like, you know, being an overbearing, like, well, gosh, I wouldn't, I would never do that to someone, but we do. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, this intersectionality, like we can, we can go through each type of identity, you know, being married is a privilege uh, being middle age is a privilege and you lose that privilege when you're a child and you lose it again as you age. Um, there's there, we, we all go in and out of privileged and targeted communities. Um, but then of course, depending on your background, you could, you could be overwhelmingly stacked in the, in the privilege side. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's complex. I wanted to say that, um, so Krell and I have been lifelong friends. And last year I had the privilege of going to his book signing. He just produced a book um, called Black Hollywood, Reimagining Iconic Movie Moments, where he took all these classic mov- movie moments from Singing in the Rain and uh, King Kong and all of them and reimagined them with Black actors. And I loved it. I loved seeing that representation. I loved seeing the beauty of his work. But of course he got a lot of pushback um, and I literally just went and saw The Little Mermaid last weekend, uh, which is also having pushback. It's amazing how much privilege co- co- literally colors people's views of what they think they're entitled to. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm entitled to have my characters look the way I want them to look, and I want them to reflect me. And um, it's just, it's just, it's just interesting how how much the discomfort of difference really freaks people out.
0: It's uh, I mean, uh, I think part of it is is change, which I know you've researched the neuroscience (laughs) behind how we react to change. And so I think part of it is just that and and people feeling like they're losing something, which is unfortunate because you're not.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of our resistance to change of all kinds is that we first We first perceive change as potential danger. Our biology is wired that way. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we focus on all the things that could go wrong or that we could lose, again, wired for our survival. And then over time, we can start to embrace the new idea and get comfortable with it and get used to it. You know, that's just, that's true of all change. And then when race or sexual orientation or class is added to the mix, it can create that reaction while normal can be very painful to other people. And- some people are are so freaked out, but their own reaction—they just want to stop the change, whatever it is, right? Shut that change mm-hmm. down. That change is too uncomfortable for me.
0: So, looking at the model, um, I love that you dove right in and sh- shared an overbearing story because it's it's uh, not many people <laughs> want to go there. But I'd love to hear—you know—when I talk to folks about the model, oftentimes I hear from women. Oh wow! Like I didn't realize I was in minimizing. Like this is actually this is describing my experience that I didn't know was happening. I'm curious if you have any any thoughts or experiences that you relate back to that minimizing area.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely as a woman, I have had to navigate a man's world, and I was very much raised by a mother who instilled in me, you know, that we're constantly having to meet men's expectations, please men be attractive to men, make men happy. And so, um, so, you know, that's definitely there. And I, I'm seeing it now as I parent and what pops up in my head, you know, as a woman, I have definitely experienced sexism, active sexism. I have experienced levels of, you know, I was molested by a man in a grocery store, um, as a child in second grade, um, I have been on, I've been on dates where I wasn't sure they would stop when I was saying no and, and, and realized that I didn't know how this was going to turn out. Um, So, you know, it was interesting. I did a, I did a, a webinar during the Me Too movement, kind of explaining the science behind um, power and harassment Uh, both from the harasser's biology, as well as the victim's biology. And I realized the survivor's biology. In putting that together, I realized, oh my gosh, there's all these moments that I've experienced this. But as a woman, you're kind of taught to expect it. Like you're taught that the the stats aren't good, that you will likely be assaulted in your lifetime. And you're taught ways to protect yourself. Um, And that's just kind of woven into how we're, how we're, Educated about how to navigate the world, I remember having this one really um, interesting moment. I, I used to teach college students, and we were teaching privilege and oppression and some of these concepts in a class. And young men, in particular, when they're when they're navigating this concept of, of queer identity, you know, young men, eighteen-year-old men who identify themselves as straight, oftentimes get very uncomfortable with the conversation. And I remembered this gentleman sharing a story about how his parents had a business in San Francisco and they expected him to work at a table during a gay pride event. And he was sharing the story about how bothered he was because while he sat at this table, guys were walking by and like catcalling and whistling at him. And one guy handed him his phone number and he just was like horrified that he was experiencing some sexual attention that he did not want. And the 18-year-old girls in the classroom just looked at him and were like, dude, I'm a waitress. That happens to me every day, every shift I work, that's how I'm treated. And it got me thinking that, that this is really an important thing to unpack because I think particularly white straight men grow up in such a world of privilege that they're not used to dealing with them not having 100% control over how they're treated and or how people perceive them. And I thought, huh? We really need to give young people better skills around that so that they're not so shooken <laughs> if it happens mm-hmm. to them, right? Nobody mm-hmm. nobody was attacking him. Nobody was uh, assaulting him. They were just flirting with him and it freaked him out. Um, but I realized that he was not used to that. He was not used to being in a position where it was kind of expected that would happen.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've definitely experienced that a lot from, you know, like, oh gosh, I wouldn't want to go to, you know, from straight friends, like, oh, I can't go to a gay bar because I don't want to get hit on. I'm like, well, why, who cares? Right? I mean, I mean, yeah. that and or relay that back to the way that you behave with the opposite sex then, right? Yeah. So something I was thinking of, I want to rewind a little bit because so you were talking about kind of your experience of, you know, assault and or just kind of, you know, unwanted advances or no, you know, is no going to stop this. The other side of that being your mother, who's like, you need to be attractive to men. You need to pull that in. Like, I'm curious. I want to dig into that a little bit more because you're sitting in the middle of that. Like what's I'm gonna stop there and see what you're thinking, how that's resonating.
1: I think women in this society, in American society, and certainly of a generation, I don't think this is true for um teenagers today, but it was very much, you know, you are you are in the male gaze. And so you want to date and attract a good husband. I mean, <laughs> my dad mm-hmm. really told me like you should learn to golf because the you know, the rich guys, the ones that would make good husbands golf and you, you're gonna meet them on a golf course. Of course. Uh, (laughs) So this whole thing around like ultimately your goal, and it was true for their generation. You know, my mom definitely lived in a generation where you needed to get that husband. And remember then the husband at the time, I mean, this was not that long ago, the husbands were able to know the medical records. Husbands could choose mental health treatments for their wives. Um, All of this stuff was something that was the reality of that time and place. And so, you know, they were raised with those values and they instilled us to the next generation. So I was definitely raised with this idea of you need to attract a man. You need to um, be pretty. You need to be not too loud, not too smart. You know, being too smart will scare some men. So I had messages around kind of dumbing myself down, not laughing too loud, looking cute, but you're right. Like, doing those behaviors then become the very things that make you make it your fault when something happens to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I should look cute and I should be appealing to go on a date and be asked to date. But then later those things are then used to victim blame. Right. So how men are taught to read those signals, I think is really interesting too, in terms of how much it gives them permission. Right. And we're seeing a lot Mm -hmm. of this, this in the, in the, in the conversations right now around bodily autonomy and, and the role of women's bodies in society, we're, we're really going backwards right now. And it's very scary. Um, but I think that there are a group of men who really want to return to the days where they owned a woman and the woman stayed home and made their dinner and, and did everything, you know, her whole job was to make him comfortable. And, Mm -hmm that that world doesn't exist anymore and i can imagine for those who got to live that world it feels like a real a real bummer to lose all of that
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. um i don't know i feel like i'm it's hard it's a big question those yeah no
0: like it is it is but you've you've actually illuminated something for me that relating it back to the minimizing area of the model what i'm hearing from you is all of these messages that you were getting was programming, minimizing into you, right? Is like, forget about who you are and who you want to be. Here's all of these messages that you need to abide by so that so that you attract other people, so that other people are comfortable. And I don't know that I've heard it that explicitly. I think there's the undertone of like, I you know, like I said, I hear from a lot of women that they like, wow, minimizing is, I didn't realize that's where I sat a lot, but I haven't heard anyone so clearly articulate that it is the programmed societal messages that put put you there.
1: I've had the experience of in my own work as an anti-racist and my own work as an ally, be honored to have people of color share their authentic stories with with us and and you know and talking about all the messages that they grew up with around being acceptable and being you know um minimizing their risk of being a target right don't drive wall black you know that whole thing around Well, Carell's story, I'm never going to run out of a store. Who taught him that? Right. Mm -hmm. And even if his parents didn't explicitly say it, but I can tell you, most black parents definitely tell their children how to avoid being attacked or being the target of police. Um, Mm -hmm. He picked it up in school. He picked it up by watching the news. He picked it up by seeing what happened in his neighborhood. Right. So, um, you know, all all. Children of targeted communities are are getting those messages around. Here are some survival tactics um, to to make the the group in power happy with you, how you dress, how you speak, how you engage, and also how to protect yourself from when members of that same community cross over and are intending you harm how to survive that harm or how to minimize that harm. It's a very complex set of messages that make it really hard to to navigate.
0: Yeah, and it makes me think about, I just keep bouncing all of this at the model and thinking about, you know, one of the the things I love about this podcast is talking to people and it's helping me see new perspectives on the work. Mm -hmm. And what I talk about in Recluse is that, it's okay if that's what you need to be safe. Right. And it's interesting because part of me wants to say, Hey, like, you know, let's let's use this kind of a conversation to illuminate and say, let's let's rethink this social programming and allow people to be themselves. However, the world, the whole world isn't necessarily ready for that. No. And so it's a careful balance of knowing when you need to, you know, protect yourself versus finding spaces where you can, um, where you can belong. And that was one of the, I want to bounce this at you because then this is kind of related. So in uh, my last episode with uh, Vanessa, we talked about how she as a trans woman first found her community of other trans folks. And it was the first time when she really felt like she could move into being herself and being in a place of belonging. And so I'm curious, like, I love this idea of kind of the, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily have to belong everywhere. We don't, it would be nice. It would be great. But like there are those places where we comfortably belong and I'm curious what have those spaces been for you?
1: That's a great question. Yeah. And the one thing I would say about the model is like, we don't live in one quadrant all the time. We're bouncing mm-hmm. back and forth in these spaces and it's very contextual who we are around and what signals we're picking up in the environment in that moment. So I Mm can see, you know, you feel one way in your house and then you get in the car and you feel another way on the road and then you pop into a coffee shop and you feel another way there. And then you get to your office and you feel another way there. And that, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's constantly moving. I think we're in agreement though, that we need to continue to do the work to get rid of the structures and the, the long held, views and beliefs that kind of create this whole thing. Nobody's happy in this environment, right? Everyone's feeling tied to it. It's just folks with power want to continue it, but they're not even happy with it either. So I think we're going to get there. We're making progress, but it's painful and it's hard. In terms of my sense of belonging.
0: Hey there, Justin here. Another two-part episode. Pick back up with us next week as we continue the conversation with Britt on where she found belonging and more research on belonging and purpose.